You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Rex Weiler is a writer and ecologist. His books include Blood of the Land, A History of Indigenous American Nations, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, Greenpeace, The Inside Story, a finalist for the BC Book Award and the Shaughnessy Cohen Award for Political Writing, and The Jesus Sayings, a deconstruction of first century history, a finalist for the BC Book Award. In the 1970s, Weiler was a co-founder of Greenpeace International and editor of the Greenpeace Chronicles. He served on campaigns to preserve rivers and forests and to stop whaling, sealing, and toxic dumping. He currently writes a monthly column on the Greenpeace International website. Today I talked with Rex about the double bind of the pandemic and what it's going to take for humanity to chart a new course in lockstep with nature rather than against it. We'll first look at the, the, at the pandemic double bind. In order to protect our, the health risk, we have to slow down our economy. We have to do this social distancing. We have to shut down restaurants. We have to essentially crash our economy to protect our health. And, and some people think, well, okay, that's the correct choice. There are other people on the other side of the issue who says, let it rip. I mean, even the entire nation of Sweden has decided to try and keep its economy open, and it's paying the price somewhat in, in the health impact. But we're facing two choices, neither of which um, are comfortable. We either crash our economy or we risk our health. So there's no, it seems or appears to us that there's no choice we can make that's satisfactory because we're going to lose both ways. When the pandemic is over, we're not out of the double bind because we're still facing the issue of do we crash our economy or do we protect Earth's ecosystems? Because we cannot do both. We cannot continue to grow and consume, uh, grow our population, grow our consumption habits, grow our economy. Uh, and at the same time, protect the ecosystem and even restore the ecosystem from the damage that we've already done. So civilization is in a larger double bind uh, because we don't want, most people don't want to trash our global economy, but at the same time, we want to protect the environment. When I hear people say they want to get back, and I understand why a lot of people are saying that, it comes from a place of just, you know, surviving and keeping their their businesses or keeping their income from their jobs going and everything um, or getting it back. But at the same time, I'm like, God, I don't know how many people realize how much they're in a hurry to get back to the reason that we're here. What do you feel like may change from this when we go back? Is it going to be completely business as usual, or are we learning something from this? Well, potentially, we could learn something because this is a this is a big wake up call. But there are massive, huge, powerful forces that just want to go back to business as usual and want to go back to making money and producing stuff and uh, returning the economy uh, to its its profitable, growing form and. The problem is, of course, if we do that, we're going back 
to the same conditions that created the conditions for this pandemic in the first place. There was actually quite an interesting letter that was uh, released uh, yesterday um, in France from a group of 200 scientists, uh, Nobel Prize laureates, uh, artists, actors, writers, all from all over the world, all around the world. And basically what they were saying is, please let's not go back to normal. Uh, the, the pandemic has exposed a meta crisis, a crisis that's a bigger crisis than the pandemic. The pandemic exposes our ecological crisis. And our ex ecological crisis has to do with the growth of our population, consumerism, and our obsession with productivity. Productivity essentially being converting the natural world into things that we can buy and sell. And so for us to return to that mode, then we're just right back in the same disaster that's led to this one. We're, and, and if the ecosystem continues to be depleted and destroyed, uh, then we're just further and further out on a limb that is going to break and our entire civilization uh, will experience the collapse from that. So no, I don't want to go back to normal. I want us to use this lesson of this pandemic to slow down our economies, uh, to understand the value of simplicity, to understand that we can live much happier lives with a lot less stuff, a lot less money, a lot less throughput of energy and materials, and that we can simplify our lives and be happy. And that this rush, this mad rush for more and more money, uh, millionaires who want to be billionaires, the billionaires who want more billions, the hundreds of billions. How can you hoard that much money uh, and continue to want more? It's just unfathomable. And yet we are trapped in this system uh, of making money. So no, I do not want to go back to normal. I think going back to normal is going back to the chaos and the crisis, the root crisis, the fundamental crisis. And I don't know if we're going to learn because Jack, there are, so, there are so many forces in our society, in our civilization, who just want to get back to, I mean, many people, and I don't blame them, just want to get back to their job and be able to have a job and be able to pay their bills and eat. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And there are also forces of the profiteers and the financiers and the bankers and the investors and the captains of the Titanic who want to get back to making millions and billions of dollars. And those, those forces of returning to what we think of normal, they're powerful. And I, think that it, and I think if we don't have a sort of a global cultural social conversation about this, we're just going to stumble back and do what we're in the habit of doing and have been in the habit of doing. If you were to design a machine that would find a new planet and completely chew it up as efficiently as possible, grind it into products and profits and everything else, could you design a better machine than we have? Because it's also, doesn't it feel like a double bind in that these people, everybody's going to go back to work. And the work is that chewing up of the planet for, for many, many of those jobs and those captains of industry are saying, this is the only jobs that we have for you. We're not going to give you any other jobs that might 
um, be less damaging to the planet. We're going to pay you. You need to get paid. You have to eat. And here's the job I'm offering you. And, and doesn't that feel like its own? Of course, that is the fundamental double bind is that our economic system, our survival, where we're going to get our food is linked to the machine that's eating the planet. And it's not just that some jobs are consuming the planet, Jack, every job, your job, my job, everything we consume requires energy and materials. Yeah. There has been this idea in the alleged green movement that we could decouple economy from consumption of materials and energy. It's never happened. It's never happened anywhere. There is no decoupling of economy from energy and materials. Everywhere the economy grows requires more materials and more energy. And where does that come from? It comes from oil. It doesn't matter whether in, entirely whether it comes from oil or solar or windmills. Windmills require uh, cement and steel, which requires fossil fuels. It's a delusion that we can continue to grow our economies and somehow protect the, the earth. We're in what ecologists call, humanity is in the state that ecologists call overshoot. Overshoot is very common in an ecosystem. Every successful species overshoots the capacity of its habitat. Why? Because evolution teaches every species to consume, to be aggressive, to grow, to reproduce. It doesn't teach species when to stop. When to stop is a matter of when you reach the limits of your habitat. That's when species stop growing and expanding and reproducing. You can see that in your own garden where you have everything growing into each other if you're not out there uh, cutting things back. And, you know, I mean, I have apple tree. Every year I have to cut the brambles out of the apple trees and the peach trees. Everything's growing into everything else. And nothing wants to stop. You can have, it's like algae in a lake. If you have a bloom of algae in a lake, it won't stop growing until it's consumed all the nutrients in the lake and then it will die back. If you have wolves in a watershed, you have, say, a, a small uh, pack of wolves enters a new watershed, they will grow their population until they've killed off all the game. Maybe they're hunting deer or rabbits, whatever they're eating. And uh, this is a very common predator-prey relationship where the predators will wipe out the prey and then the predators themselves will die back and the prey will come back and then the predators will come back and then the prey will die down. And this sort of pulsating relationship, the predator-prey relationship, is very common in nature. It's an example of overshoot. Successful species overshoot their habitat. Well, we're a species... We're in a habitat, the whole planet, and we have overshot the capacity of Earth. Now, in, in ecological terms and in ecological reality, any species in overshoot, there's only all the solutions to overshoot involve contraction, reducing the population, reducing the consumption. So when the wolves die back in the watershed or when the algae dies back in the lake, we don't cry crocodile tears over that. We don't think that's a necessarily a tragedy. That's the way nature works. So the fact that the human enterprise on the grand scale has to scale back and has to contract 
we take offense to that. It, it, it's, it's a violation of, kind of some of our basic assumptions and presumptions about ourselves and who we are, our presumptions about freedom, our presumptions about the right to consume, the right to grow our economy, the right to do whatever we want. But we, must, we make a terrible mistake because we mistake our, what we think of as our political and social rights with ecological rights. There are no ecological rights in that sense. Mother Nature is not going to negotiate with us. If we destroy the planet, if we, if we deplete the planet, deplete the resources, and continue to grow our population, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14 billion people on a depleted planet, there is going to be a massive dieback. And Mother Nature does not negotiate. And she's not particularly sentimental about who dies. And so if we don't accept uh, the limits of our ecosystem, which is the Earth, and if we, don't, if we don't control our own growth, growth of population, growth of consumption, growth of our economy, if we don't learn to contract and slow down, then it will be forced upon us. And believe me, you know, I would much prefer the wise path of us consciously slowing down uh, because the, you know, ecological collapse and social collapse will, will not be pleasant. I think a lot more people see what's coming than pretend otherwise. And it feels like humanity's made the decision sometimes that we're going to take door number two, that that darker, put it off till later. Yeah, I believe the scientists who say that it's going to be really bad. Are you uh, hopeful when something like this happens? Uh, maybe, maybe we would turn the tide in some way. Will, and will it be enough? Well, Jack, I know scores of people who understand this uh, because I'm. I'm an ecologist. I work with scientists and, and ecologists all over the world. Mm. Um, a few years ago, there was a, a, a statement put out by, signed by over 2,000 scientists saying exactly what I'm saying. You know, there are limits. So there's a scientific community. There's an ecological community. And I think many, many people just instinctively realize that this mad race for more, more, more of everything uh, is, is a destructive path that's going to end in, in chaos and collapse. However, if you took all those scientists, all the ecologists who understand it, all of the people who understand it instinctively, many indigenous people, if you talk to them about this, they say, of course, we've known this all along. It's still an extreme minority of humanity that is understands this and is willing to accept it. I can tell you, Jack, even in the ecology movement, even in the environmental movement, I would say a small percentage of people in environmental groups have a clue what we're talking about. They still think we can just go business as usual. We'll build a bunch of windmills and solar panels get rid of the oil companies and we'll all be fine. No, we will not be, not with seven, eight, nine, ten billion people all needing to consume more stuff. It doesn't matter what our energy system is. I'm sure, I mean, it'd be better if it was solar panels than, than hydrocarbons, but 
nine, 10 billion people with unlimited free energy would be a disaster on the planet. So I guess mm. what I'm saying is it's something we can learn. It's something we can understand. Thousands of people do understand that we have to slow down, maybe millions of people, but it's still a vast major a minority of the population. So this is why this conversation is so important. Even within the environmental movement, it's important. I find myself talking to environmentalists all the time and having to explain to them, look, we're in overshoot. It, you know, we can't just we can't just imagine we're going to have business as usual and, and we don't have to address population and we don't have to address consumption. We don't have to address capitalism because all we need to do is build windmills. I'm sorry. It's just not true. It's delusional. And so I find myself, even in the environmental movement, having to have this debate with people. Now, much less imagine, you know, there's a billion people, Jack, on the uh, living essentially on the on the uh, edge of starvation. There's another couple billion people of the working poor uh, who, you know, really just have to work day to day by day by day for wages. And then there's, you know, more people in the middle class who basically are in the same situation of just having to work day by day just to just to make the ends meet. Now, the force of all those people to have families, to grow, to have their income, to have their jobs, to have jobs for their children, to have cars and trucks for their children, uh, to have homes and so forth and so on. There's a tremendous force in people just wanting to live and live comfortably. And so I'm not necessarily optimistic that the, the scientists and the ecologists who understand that we have to contract and slow down, I'm not sure if that voice is going to be strong enough. So far, it has not been. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org and don't forget to share it with friends. Um, but here we are stuck talking about this still, and it's 2020. I was wondering maybe if you'd give a little perspective on how you've been at this quite a long time, and how do you feel about having to have this conversation? Did you imagine that you would ever get to 2020, and this is what you would be still talking about? 50 years ago, in the 1970s, when... Greenpeace was just started. I was involved in the early days of Greenpeace and early days of the ecology movement. And, and it's hard for people to imagine, but at that time, there really wasn't an ecology movement like there is now. There were certainly some ecologists and scientists who were talking about ecology. And, and Rachel Carson had written her book, uh, Silent Spring, in 61. But there was no ecology movement. And we were talking at that time about we need an ecology movement. That's why Greenpeace came into existence in the 1970s. Uh, we need an ecology movement. We have a peace movement. There's a women's movement. There's a civil rights movement. We could, even if we solved all those, we're still hooped if we don't have an ecology movement. 
Now, I believed at that time in the 1970s that ecology was going to be like civil rights or it was going to be like the women's movement. It's obvious, of course, of course, everybody should have the same rights. Of course, women should have equal rights to men. Of course, all races should have equal rights. It just seems so bloody obvious. And I thought that ecology would be equally obvious, but it, it's not. And I think it's not equally obvious because there's no human constituency necessarily uh, that is prepared, that's fighting for themselves, as there is with the women's movement or civil rights movement, where you have a natural constituency. The, the, the people that are going to be, are, the harm from ecological destruction is the harm to other species who have no vote in our system. It's the harm to future generations of humans who have no vote in our system. And so ecology is a tougher nut to crack in terms of getting humanity to turn around because we're talking about long-term benefits and benefits for other species and benefits for wild nature itself and benefits for unborn children. It's very difficult for people to wrap their heads around that. Uh, and again, I go back to evolution. Evolution taught us to look after ourselves and our immediate needs. Evolution didn't teach us to necessarily to be able to think 200 years into the future or 100 years into the future and protect other species and protect uh, you know unborn children. Evolution gave us the instincts to look after ourselves and our families, our communities in the, in the immediate time frame. So we are a little bit trapped or locked into, like every, just like the wolves, people say, you know, we're the only species that's aware of what we're doing. First of all, my first question when I hear people say that is, how do you know? Right. How do you know what a, what a wolf is aware of or what a whale is aware of or what a, what a bumblebee is aware of, for that matter? Um, so don't presume that you're the only species that, that, that is intelligent and is aware of your existence and is aware of the fact that you might die. I mean, wolves in a pack, I guarantee you, are aware that they're of death, for example. And so are whales and other mammals that we, we observe them and there are rituals around death. And they, they know what death is. They know that this all comes to an end. I would, I would summarize the challenge as this. We need to learn how systems work. You don't get out of a double bind with a sort of linear engineering uh, problem solution mentality that we're used to and comfortable with. We think if you have a problem, then you look at the problem, you, you think it through, you come up with some, you engineer some kind of plan, and then you implement the plan and you solve the problem. Double binds don't work that way. Uh, when you try to change a large-scale system, the, see, the problem, what a double bind is, is essentially is a conflict between a larger system and a, a part of that system, which is us, humanity, and our assumptions and presumptions uh, and expectations, which the larger system doesn't have to honor. So it's this conflict between uh, levels of existence. We talk about freedom. We, have, we want civil rights. We want freedom. But in ecology, nothing has the freedom to, to live forever. Nothing has the freedom to have whatever they want, not in an ecosystem. You have to negotiate with that ecosystem. So double binds are not solved by our linear engineering mind. 
we have to learn to think the way systems operate. If you try to change a complex system, you have to be prepared for the fact that there may be unintended consequences. You have to realize that the system's not going to respond the way you want it to respond. Societies over time throughout history have learned this over and over again. I mean, very complex societies have collapsed throughout history. You can go back to Mesopotamia, Rome, uh, Easter Island, you know, the British Empire for that matter. Complex societies do collapse uh, because mm-hmm. they, they don't understand how the larger system that keeps them alive, that is the ecosystem, how it works. So part of our challenge, uh, if we are in fact as smart as we think we are, if we're as intelligent as we think we are, we have to be intelligent enough to understand how a large-scale living system works and what our place is in it. And if we want to go about changing that system, we have to understand how that system works. We don't know half the stuff we think we do when it comes to nature and what it really does. You can only put things and pieces in proximity to each other, and you very much need to let nature finish the sowing, finish the recuperation, the restoration, and that humans have never really restored anything at all, ever, completely. We can only move the pieces on the board around a little bit. Like I think a swamp was here and this kind of water system was flowing in this way and we just get it close and then we have to rely on something we know nothing about at the end of the day and how that actually heals itself. And yet we're making phones and cars and and all these oil-based products and everything else as if we do know where everything goes, the full cycle of all of our decisions all of the things that we produce, all of the things that we do, and but we don't. We it, It's kind of scary when you start adding up the things we don't know, yet we're carrying on in the way that we do. You, that's very well said, Jack. We um, That is precisely our, our, our dilemma. We go at these things with the tool that we're used to, which is engineering. Maybe we can put everything on a spreadsheet and figure out what to do. For example, with climate change, we look for engineering solutions. So, like, can we build a smokestack that cleans the carbon out of the smoke? Can we put little sulfite umbrellas up in the sky to shield the sun to keep the earth from heating? Um, can we switch from um, hydrocarbons to windmills and solar panels? Yeah, we can sort of do those things, but what we cannot do is predict precisely all of the unintended consequences of this. For example, when we set out to build windmills, did we really think about the whole supply chain? Did we consider the fact that to make cement uh, requires a tremendous amount of fossil fuels? Uh, When we make steel, we need fossil fuels. When we mine all the resources for windmills and solar panels, uh, have we really thought about the mining and manufacturing and shipping process? We keep coming up with these engineering solutions rather than learning how the system works and thinking on the large scale and realizing, hey, we're in overshoot. Every solution that's actually going to work is going to involve us getting smaller, smaller in number, smaller in impact, smaller in consumption habits and so forth. We don't like that. We think that there is no problem we can't solve with engineering, but we're wrong about that. 
And so we continually find ourselves back in the middle of the double bind uh, because we're not willing to accept the, the genuine solutions. And if we don't address human population numbers, if we don't address consumption, capitalism, profiteering, uh, our obsession with, with uh, productivity, productivity is essentially turning the wild world into products. It, we're obsessed with being productive. And you, you talked earlier about the fact that, you know, all these jobs, every job on earth is trying to be productive. It's a push to be more productive. We should learn the benefits of not being productive. We should learn the benefits of being inefficient, not necessarily using every waking hour to, to make more money or be more important or uh, be become a star or whatever, be a success. There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with trying hard. But we just, we're getting it wrong to think that, that we're going to come up with some uh, silver bullet solution uh, that's just going to allow us to carry on business as usual. The problem that we continue to face, as you just said very well, uh, is that we don't understand how complex the system is, and we don't understand all of the uh, unexpected consequences of our actions. So we set out to build renewable energies, uh, and we haven't really looked at the supply chain impact on the earth. To build an energy system for 8 billion people in which everybody has all the energy they, they need, um, you really have to look at the supply chain and you have to look at every step of that supply chain and how do you get all those materials and how do you put it all together and ship it all over the world and install it? Where do you get the land base to install all those windmills and all those solar panels? What if I had the ability to make you the next... Uh, witness at a congressional hearing, and they were they were actually all ears about that this isn't an engineering problem, that we're going to have to limit ourselves. Let's let this man talk. Let's just hear him out for the first time ever. Let's, you know, calm our little industry buddies that per support us being here as politicians and everything. Let's just, let's hear him out. It's not an engineering problem. We have to le learn to deal with these bigger systems. Do we really actually have to learn everything about the system or do we know enough now to know that we have to dial back because we don't understand and we may never get to an understanding of this big system before we've caused so much damage we can't turn back we cannot understand everything about the system that is one of the first things that you learn when you try to learn how do systems work no part of the system can understand the whole system therefore we have to take a much more humble approach to living in this larger system than we have in the past. We're not going to create a better life for ourselves by understanding the entire system because we will never understand the entire system. We have to learn to respect the system. It's just like respecting another culture. It's just like respecting another gender. A person in China doesn't have to understand everything about African culture to have respect for that culture. A, a male human doesn't have to understand everything about the way women think in order to respect women. And we don't have to understand everything about 
Earth's ecosystem to respect that ecosystem. And in fact, rather than try and engineer and manage that ecosystem and understand everything about it, what we need to do is become an apprentice to that system. You know what? The Taoists, they had it right 5,000 years ago. The way to uh, fashion human action is to observe the wild world, observe the way things happen in nature, and fashion human action and human society after the ways and the, and the methods and the, and the uh, patterns of the natural world. That is the secret to understanding systems, not understanding everything about them. And, and then, again, that's just the engineering mind leaping in there and saying, oh, if we understood everything about the system, we could write a program and fix it all. No, 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 no. Wrong approach. We have to be way more humble. Look, we call it Mother Earth for a very good reason. She nurtures us. She takes care of us. She's bigger than us. She, she bats last. She knows what's going on. We don't. And because of our intelligence, we've become very arrogant. And we have to lose that arrogance. That's what I would tell the, the Congress. Lose our arrogance. Become a student of nature. Become the apprentice of nature. Learn her ways and be respectful. It's, it's a humbling process. Thank you for elucidating that because we are really, really good at talking about the problems and what we're doing wrong. And I keep wanting to push the discussion further, regardless of the fact that right at the moment, there aren't a lot of people in power that want to let us talk about that, to hear what we have to say. We should be prepared for it in case they do, or that we get the foothold to be able to force the issue. Uh, we should be prepared, I feel. And thank you for helping us further prepare for that eventuality. First of all, our contraction, Jack, is inevitable. So I know that that's going to happen. I just mm -hmm. want it to happen intelligently and wisely and, and for us to use our intelligence to contract. I don't want to just leave it up to the wild nature will take care of us eventually and contract for us, people ask me all the time, well, where's the hope? Well, I'll tell you where the hope is for me. The hope is that I trust nature. I really do trust nature. I'm a Taoist in that sense. Is we are products of the natural world. We're species like other species. Our intelligence is kind of interesting, but it doesn't mean that we're not just another species. We are, and we can go extinct like anything else. We can overshoot our habitat and die back like anything else. But I put my trust and faith and hope in the fact that nature herself uh, is very strong, very resilient, beautiful, creative, uh, just unimaginably beautiful and creative. And that if we, if we get in step with her, then we'll be okay. And I believe that, that no matter what happens, some people will be in step with nature. I mean, you know, they say that, you know, the old saying, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. Of course, the meek will inherit the earth. That's the only thing that's sustainable. Our, our civilization, our high consumption civilization is not sustainable. But there are people living on the earth right now today that if, if modern industrial civilization collapsed, their lives would be better. People living in the Amazon forest, people living along the rivers, and the, the, the people living the simplest lives would be the least 
impacted in a sense by the collapse of industrial civilization. We, we would consider it a, uh, a crisis. We wouldn't have our cars, we wouldn't have trucks delivering our food, but if you got your food out of the river, um, you don't need the trucks. Rex, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here. Um, this has really been an eye-opening conversation. Well, it's my pleasure, Jack. Uh, I, I love what you're doing, and I'm I'm thrilled to be able to be involved. And um, I love talking about these things because we have to have these conversations, and they're difficult conversations. And you know, we, it's very easy to be wrong, and very easy to to get the wrong idea about things, me included. And so, it's really good to have the conversations, stay open, listen to each other, and. Um, do the best we can. I know there are a lot of people who are doing the best they can. And thank you, Jack, for, for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.